Hello and welcome to the Dust Nostalgia Podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Anatoly, and today I have another wonderful guest for your listening pleasure. Sir, please introduce yourself. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Carlos Teixeira, known around on the internet as Carlos X, and I'm a retro hardware and software enthusiast from Portugal, although I'm living in the UK right now. And uh, yeah, I love everything DOS-related and games that ran on DOS and hardware that ran DOS and pretty much everything to do with the uh, IBM PC standard. Awesome. Alrighty, sir. Well, I guess we can announce our topic later. But before we get to, to the main course, so to speak, uh, I would like to ask you, do you remember your first experience with an IBM PC or compatible? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. Um, it was uh, somewhere back around in 1990 or 91. I'm not sure. I'm I'm probably the the youngest guest that you got on your podcast. Um, my experience might be slightly sim- similar to yours in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, in Portugal, we had nothing but a. Uh, my family had nothing but a, a Timex Spectrum, which was a clone. But uh, yeah, it, it was back in 1991, somewhere around that, and. Um, when we were living there, uh, before we moved to a later, couple of years later, to our uh, single-family house, we used to live in a about eight-story high apartment building. Uh-huh. So me and my brother, we we had this friend on the eighth floor, and um, you know, he used to um, ask us to 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 go there to to his house and play some games in in his spectrum. And that time, when when he he asked us to to go there, uh, he showed us this this computer that was. Anything I never seen anything so big, and if I'm not mistaken, he had a two eighty two eighty six on that, uh-huh. uh, and and with with CGA graphics, <laughs> and I think it, I think it was CGA because I remember he showing us games, and I wasn't seeing more than four colors at once, so I I was kind of you know I was not impressed because he fired up um, Grand Prix Circuit right uh, by yes. Ac- yeah by accolade, accolade. I remember and that I thing. remember seeing only four colors, and and I was you know this is I mean I, I was impressed by the speed. I liked how fast he could launch the game, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I remember my Spectrum. It had eight beautiful colors, and it looked so much better than that. Although the, the simulation was quite nice and it was quite fast, um, but I, I wasn't seeing in terms of colors. I wasn't see, I wasn't seeing anything spectacular. His father, he had a company that that um, that was on the printing business, and um, I guess he better he had good access to PC clones and parts right. because they work with distributors. Right. So I remember that uh, quite a few times later he upgraded to a 386 and then had a sound blaster and then he had already a VGA and that thing blew my mind. Right, Absolutely. Right. I was blown away. Completely blown away. So um, in, in the summer, a year later in the summer of 92, uh, we moved to our new house uh, and we still had nothing but, but our spectrum. Uh, fortunately, not only our friend um, invited me and my brother to visit him and play some games together, but on our new house, we also had a front neighbor right across the street who had an AMD, a, a 386 DX40. Oh, wow. And I remember him inviting uh, me as well um, one day, and he was there playing Guy Spy and Crystals of Armageddon, <laughs> which okay, I don't know if you remember that game. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, car- cartoony game, mm-hmm. but I, I thought, man, this is this is awesome and very good looking. And what's fun about that is that me and my brother, we we liked uh, his computer so much that in 1994, my brother who was working in a bakery uh, bought the computer from our neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we got quite a nice computer, 386 DX40, four megs of RAM. We got a Super VGA uh, at Sing Labs, which was wow. very compatible at the yeah, time. Not uh, too shabby. 100- 
Yeah, 130 megabyte hard drive. So yeah, that was our first com uh, computer. Although um, he had a sound blaster in that computer, but he refused to sell the computer with the sound blaster. So oh. we went back to PC speaker. <laughs> That's right. So uh, only a year later, we got a, a Sound Galaxy Pro card, which which had awesome ad libs, sound blaster, sound blaster Pro compatibility. So. Mm. Yeah, that was it. That that's pretty much the story. No, that's very nice. That's uh, that's not too bad. Uh, it's uh, I mean, it is pretty much very similar to what like an average person would experience in Russia, probably around the same time too. Um, so now uh, that's out of the way. Uh, what are we going to talk about today, sir? Well, uh, yeah, I loving every everything to do with. IBM PC standard. Uh, we're going to talk about evolution since the beginning of, um, you know, the, the dawn of IBM PC to the end of DOS, which uh, uh, happened for me quite late, um, quite late because I was still playing DOS games mm -hmm. up to 1997, 1998, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's so much fun stuff to talk about, at least for me, because I, I, I'm a hardware guy. I love this All stuff. All right. Excellent. And excellent. games as well. <laughs> okay, well, take it away, sir. Well, um, where should we go? Yeah, right to the beginning. We should go to the beginning, yeah, of course. Yeah, 1981, I mean, IBM 5150. I mean, IBM, you know, decided they wanted to to go on the, the computer market, you know. And uh, going on to the business market, uh, there was a saying at the time that no one would ever get fired for, for buying IBM. So the IBM 5150 was quite successful, and it sold a lot. I think they were expecting to sell um, much less than a million than a million units, actually, and only in a, a few uh, amount of time they they sold more than a million. So it it was it was incredible mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And being oriented to the uh, business market, um, the IBM 5150 was not an impressive computer. I mean, for people who wanted to play games, they had stuff like Commodore 64. I guess that in America, one I mean, a lot of American houses had the Apple II. That was probably the, the computer that that ruled the market. Right. I guess. Well, I mean, Commodore. I mean, even though Apple II was was really taken off here. Now, now that now that I, I do live here, it appears that just about everybody had a C64 because it was, yes, it was yes. cheap and wildly popular. Yes, 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 absolutely, and 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 um, beautiful graphics, beautiful sound on the on the C sixty four. Not to mention, like on the original IBM machines. I mean, being business oriented, they were really expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they cost an arm an arm and a leg. I mean, if if you um, if you account inflation um, today, it would cost like uh, ten thousand dollars or something like that. Uh, like a new economy car. So yeah. yeah right, right, right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the specs on the, uh, 5150 were not, uh, I mean, very impressive. They, they, they kind of went, um, they were conservative. Uh, they didn't want it too much of a fast computer. And sometimes, sometimes I think about it. What if, uh, IBM would choose instead of Intel, Motorola? Right. Because Motorola was, was also a big, uh, big company on, on the CPUs. They had their very famous 16 bit, 68,000 processor. Right. Which later was featured on machines such as the Amiga. Right, right, right. And well, everybody, just about every computer used used the Motorola processor in 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 one or you know in certain capacities, if not all yeah. of them. Usually, yeah, a lot, usually. Yeah, a lot of them did. Yeah, a lot of a lot of them did, uh, and it was quite capable uh, at that time. And even Motorola, had, like like Intel, they had um, an eight bit version of that sixteen bit processor. The the, the sixty eight thousand was was a sixteen bit one, and they had a sixty eight hundred. 
which oh, was wow. the uh, 8-bit one. But yeah, I mean, IBM went went with Intel, but they, they made a very important decision. Um, okay, we'll go with Intel architecture, but we want uh, second sources for that processor because they, they didn't want to be dependent on Intel. If something, imagine if something went wrong, Right on the fabbing process, and if Intel would would have a problem and not be able to to deliver processors, they would have problems uh, in right. manufacturing the machines. Yeah. So you know, a few companies entered with with Intel on that. AMD was obviously the the one that stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so yeah, x86 architecture went along for that. They were quite conservative in in the clock speed. I mean, the Intel 8088 it could do five megahertz, but what they did was they they used the clock crystal of 14.3 um, megahertz. Uh-huh. They divided the signal by three, and that gave the 4.77 megahertz that we uh, we all know. Um, quite slow. I mean, eight bit. 8-bit process processing. I mean, the, the CPU is even uh, clock per clock per clock is even slower than the, the CPU on on the um, Commodore 64, mm-hmm. the 6502. Uh, so it was not impressive at that time. Um, I mean, the machine was quite limited. I mean, it had it shipped with only 16K, which was was ridiculous at that time. It was, so it was usually upgraded to 64K. Uh, I mean, graphics were not important. Right. were so not important that even at that time the, the the machine shipped with MDA with optional CGA if people wanted color, and um, actually the the, the monitor uh, to support CGA was only released in 1983. The 5153 monitor mm-hmm. was only released in 1983, which was quite a lot of time, two years between the release of the 5150. So the CGA graphics, even though it was offered, what it had is a a, a RCA, RCA output for for right. composite video. Uh, which um, a few game developers used to very quite, few yeah quite a good use I mean uh, King's Quest is quite a good example I like that game uh, I, I can't stand playing that game in CGA I just mm-hmm. can't so I guess that uh, at that time um, composite CGA was quite nice uh, no hard drive at all I mean hard drives were far too expensive far too expensive at that time so 200, 360k uh, disk drives two of them I, I guess uh, two were optional you could order with one or two, uh, only five expansion slots, which was quite limited. I mean, most of the slots were already been taken by, I mean, controllers and 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 whatnot, uh, parallel I/O, mm-hmm. floppy controllers, um, and and it had a cassette port, which <laughs> was for a. Um, I mean, at the, since it was the first PC, you know, when, but, you know, today, when we think about it, I mean, cassette port on a PC is quite strange because it was quite slow. Right. But uh, it was still an economic way to, to you know, deliver data uh, tapes. I mean, it, it, it was with other computers as well. Right. I actually saw a YouTube video uh, recently um, of uh, someone using a, a 5150 with a cassette port. Really? I need to check that you, out. Yeah, you, you got to check that out. Yeah, um, I've never seen this one. Yeah, I can send you a link later and then you can put on, on the video's description. Um, but it's quite, it's quite, uh, funny to see the guy, I mean, loading the, the program on, 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 on the cassette port and it's maybe like 20 lines of basic and it took so much time to load those. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that thing was slow as shit. <laughs> and, um, of course, that dinky PC, PC speaker that we had to uh, right. <laughs> that we had to deal with uh, for a lot of years, for a lot of years, and and people, you know, soon enough wanted to play games, 
and uh, yeah, pretty much CGA was um, everything that was available in MDA and PC speaker sound, which was quite loud, I think. Yes, I mean, very if you loud. Wanted, if you wanted to play at night, you would have to, I mean, if you did, didn't want to wake up anybody, you would have to Discon- uh, disconnect yeah, it or disable yeah, it. disassemble the computer yeah. and disable the damn things. <laughs> I remember, so I mean, was, all the PC speakers were always like very loud, at least in my memory, up until I, I think about the 486 times. Like I've had some 386s with the PC speakers were really, really loud. Yeah. Actually, on on the the Tandy one thousand, they were even bigger. But that's an we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, IBM, of course, uh, they wanted to get deeper into into the uh, home market, and and the fifty one fifty was their was their flagship. And even by the time that they released their PC Junior, we 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 had already the IBM XT, which which was improved quite quite nicely. I mean, still the same processor. But, uh, you know, at least 120k memory, um, initially CGA, but a, a year later, you could already get EGA like 1984. Right. Well, that's, that's what I remember. Like, like the XT is, is, is what I really originally discovered. And that's where, like, I played yeah. games most of, I, I don't think I've ever seen an XT, especially in a, in the Soviet Union, an XT with a, with an EGA monitor. I either saw it, you know, like, uh, you know, it was a, a CGA monitor. Uh, I mean, it's, it was a CGA uh, output, and usually wasn't even. Uh, I didn't even see any colors because it's usually yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, I grew up with a lot of lo- those, um, you know, phosphorus uh, green uh, monitors, which are actually really nice. Yes, yes, yes. And Ghosting like, effect. <laughs> yes, and like a, a like a, a you know like a Hercules maybe. Um. Card, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but the XT. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned that EGA was available. It was in 1984, I guess, but but no one. I mean, it was too expensive yes. at the time. It was just too expensive. And even for me, I mean, I, I when I was a kid, I thought the the base computer. I, I thought it had started with the two two eighty six. Mm-hmm. Actually, I never knew anything about an XD and or a fifty one fifty. Only few when when I was in my teens. So. Um, so yeah, the I remember reading a magazine in Portugal about games, and they had a section where people could make like Q and A questions. Uh-huh. And there was this guy uh, asking if he could play, what was it? Um, he was asking if he could play um, Lethal Weapon, the, the game Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. on an uh, XT clone at 10 megahertz. And uh, the answer was no. I'm sorry, but your hardware is a little bit outdated. And I was like, you know, XT 10 megahertz. That sounds like. 10 megahertz that sounds quite slow so uh, i thought okay there's something below the 286 i didn't know that that was in my teens but uh, yeah i mean dxt um when when it was released but at that time uh, i guess that with dxt a lot of clones started to appear on the market it was quite remarkable how um clones started to appear compact uh compact of course mm-hmm. were very important in that role right um they managed to i guess started to do a clean room engineering of the BIOS because the BIOS was really the only thing um, um, that was kind of IBM because mm-hmm. pretty much everything in the computer was off-the-shelf parts. That's why everybody got so into cloning uh, the PCs, I guess. And, I mean, all these clones started to appear that were nearly 100% compatible with the PC. And this market hole exploded at such a rate that even IBM later acknowledged that they had to license um, their BIOS instead of taking everybody to court. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that that was so much better. Right. But uh, so IBM, they they you know they got into the um, 
the whole market thing. So they decided to uh, release the PC Junior, which was announced with, with quite a fanfare at the time. Everybody was was looking forward to that because everybody trusted IBM. Right. Um, and uh, they started nerfing this computer and taking so much out of it that they they inadvertently made made a bad clone uh because it it wasn't totally 100% compatible right and because they wanted they i guess they didn't want to cannibalize the 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 sales of the 5150 and the XT with which were their flagships at the time when they were designing the PC Junior the XT wasn't there at the time but they were working on it but i guess they didn't want to okay we cannot make a computer that it's faster and it's cheaper than our flagship otherwise no nobody else is going to buy our flagship so they nerfed the, com- the computer. I mean, the PC Junior is quite a, although uh, it did a lot for gaming, uh, very slow machine. It's probably the, the slowest machine that um, on the IBM PC standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, they cut so much. I mean, there's no DMA, which means uh, direct memory access. And w- what, what does that mean is that your CPU is going to do uh, a lot more work because uh, hardware is going to have to go through uh, the CPU, pretty mm-hmm. much, and things that should could go with with DMA, with the access to memory directly, um, you have to go through the CPU, which takes a, a lot of pro- processing power. So, so the PC Junior was slower. Uh, not only was slower, um, it came only with 64K at the time, and uh, the expandability was very weird. I mean, you couldn't open the machine like a 5150 and put a, a memory card expansion memory card on that. What you would do, you'd have these sidecars, which were kind of blocks of, um, I don't even know how correctly how to explain it, but on the right side of the computer, you would take like a lid off and you would put these sidecars, which were expansions that you could buy. So you could buy 64 more memory and put it into there and you could like forever keep on adding this stuff and suddenly your computer was like I guess two or three meters wide because <laughs> it had so many sidecars I guess they could keep on expanding the computer like that but um, I mean it had cartridge uh, cartridge slots which right. <laughs> is so weird on, 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 on a PC and you would see that on, a, on Atari's and that was quite uh, I mean Quite usual to see on, on home smaller home computers to see cartridges because cartridges only took 64k uh, and programs at that time uh, were already pushing a little bit more than that. The thing was quite useless. It came with a with a 360k floppy drive, uh, which at least helped. Um, I mean, the keyboard was terrible. It was this cheeklet keyboard that you would see on on cheap home computers? And keys would get stuck, and they could have like these overlays. You could, if you if you would buy a game like King's Quest or something like that, the game would come with an overlay that you could put on keyboard, and then the overlay would tell you what keys do for for the game, you know. Mm. And that was 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 quite a weird thing. But they recognized that the chiclet keyboard wasn't very good, and people were demanding a better keyboard. So so they gave an option later of a slightly improved keyboard. It was a lot better. And it was wireless, and um, the thing, the thing you could you could get an optional cable for it, I think. But the thing uh, you could power on with batteries, and and it, it was wireless, and the sensor only worked at certain angles. And people were thinking that they could, you know, at that time people could even uh, plug the computer to to their monitor or TV. They right. thought they could be on their on their sofa, like using their wireless keyboard, and and the TV was like. Uh, 
six or seven feet away, but it, it wouldn't work because it was too far away. So um, that was that. Um, it had a 14-inch monitor, which I think was one of the greatest things in, in the in the PC Junior. Uh, it was capable of the um, expanded um, CGA modes, of course, which at that time was was called Video Gatorade, uh, VGA for short, but not having anything to do with the later VGA that came. Uh, so yeah, people prefer that as PC Junior graphics mode. Right. Um, it had very weird propri- proprietary iPorts on the back, which I, I mean, again, IBM doing their prop- proprietary nonsense. Um, and I mean, the, the it was quite a small computer comparing to the 5150 because it didn't have an internal power supply. You would have like the uh, other computers, uh, like an, a brick, an external brick power supply that you would connect on the, on the back of the computer. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty limited. But, uh, again, I, I would have to say there's no doubt that the PC Junior, with all its problems, it helped a lot on um, bringing PC gaming away because IBM even got Sierra to, uh, and here comes Sierra, to to, to do um, games specifically specifically for, for the PC Junior and to take advantage of their 16-color uh, uh, graphics. And, mm-hmm. and they're obviously the one of the greatest um, thing, new things that, w- that were good in the PC Junior was a, a three-voice uh, sound chip, which had a, also a, a noise generator, right. uh, a Texas Instruments SN96 uh, sound generator. That was, uh, I think it was used in other home computers, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yeah, I mean, Sierra made King's Quest uh, for, for the PC Junior, which looked very, very good. I mean, when you compared um, the PC Junior version to to the fifty one fifty, playing that on the fifty one fifty, there's a whole a whole difference in that. Oh yeah, I mean, there's like music and everything. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, and it, it sounds so so good. I mean, when when you when you go from from hearing the single voice PC speaker, uh, and then you hear the uh, three voice Tandy one thousand, there's such a big difference, and it sounds so good. I mean, you can hear harmonies and it sounds very good. Uh, you'd have um, on on the the sound was actually outputted on on the uh, through the monitor, and you had like um, a volume a volume dial that you could control the volume, which mm-hmm. was very good because on the PC you could, could on the original PC you could that do that at all with the with the PC speaker. But yeah, that that was quite nice. That were, that was quite nice, and it was quite an improvement on on the uh, audio department. Even though I mean, on on the PC speaker there were um, Programmers that were kind of pushing the boundaries, like doing some digitized sounds on on the um, on the PC. There were a few games that did that. Uh, they pulse the speaker to 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 have some digitized PCM. sounds. Yeah, yeah, basically one bit. And and people, you know, I mean, they got pretty good at it, but pretty much was a a waste of programming talent. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, developers. Uh, did not go for that, right? Because later, when you would start to see better, better um, implementations of that PC speaker PCM, uh, trying to pulse the speaker to give some digitized sounds through it, uh, you already had the uh, AdLib and, and other sound devices. Some people might not know this, but uh, actually, Wolfenstein 3D, it had PC speaker digitized sounds as well. I don't know if. Uh, probably some people might know this, but what happened was um, ID uh, released the uh, source code of of, of uh, Wolfenstein 3D, 
And uh, there was some guy, I don't remember who, uh, if that guy, he's hearing the podcast for any reason, he might leave a comment on the comment section. But uh, he was spoken through the uh, source code. And um, he actually found routines in the code for uh, digitized sounds. Where everything we hear on the Sound Blaster played uh, on an actually PC speaker. There's a video on YouTube actually, and I was so surprised with that. And um, what he did, he he activated the thing. He basically modified a config file, and uh, he compiled the thing, and voila! And you have um, the guards talking like they do on the PC speaker, of course not with good quality as you can hear on the Sound Blaster, but it's there. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but it, it's actually true. And the reason why they might um, dropped it out, they might have disabled it, it was because simply of, of uh, processor constraints. Right. I mean, because the, the, the game was actually targeted to, to be played on, on a 286. Mm-hmm. And it plays quite well on a 286. Some people actually modified the source to uh, to play on an XT. Oh, wow. Um, Does it work? <laughs> Yeah, it yeah, works. Like the smallest, people, the smallest screen size. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it's very, very slow, even on a Turbo XT. Because um, I mean, since we're talking, we're talking about PC Junior and the XT um, clones appearing, and people were pushing the boundaries. I mean, IBM didn't go farther the uh, four point seventy seven megahertz, but um, soon enough, clones appeared where they were clocking CPUs at eight megahertz. Right. You, you would, you would have the eighty eight two, which was another version that could clock at at 8 megahertz, which is double that. And you could even swap the 8088 for a pin-compatible processor, which was the NEC V20, or the NEC V20, which was a Japanese-made CPU. And I guess they improved a bit on on the core of the 8088. So it would give, like, depending on the application, it would give clock-per-clock, like, a 10% uh, speed speed improve, improvement. So uh, people were using uh, NEC V20s and they would uh, overclock them. And I think I read someone about pushing one to 15 megahertz. I'm not sure. I know that uh, myself, me being very heavy into retro gaming, uh, I bought, I found a, a very cheap motherboard on eBay, an XT Turbo clone, and I bought the thing. And when I get back to Portugal on vacation, I'm going to build a uh, Turbo XT, which uh, <laughs> should be clocked at 12 megahertz to play the uh, older PC booter games that I have there because it's impossible to play. Um, because there it is, because of uh, games were programmed to, uh, I mean, on, on the timer and on the speed of, of the, based of on the, the speed of the original. Yeah, yeah exactly. On the, and, and they're impossible to play, even if you try to slow the system down. In 1986, uh, there was a company in Eugene, Oregon, in the, in the U.S. called Kovox, uh-huh. and they started to sell this uh, a parallel port dongle, which you connect onto the um, parallel port. There was just basically a resistor ladder. I am very familiar with Kovox, because yeah. uh, in Russia, we didn't have that, but it was such an easy thing to make. To that, make, that yeah. A lot of magazines just published the... The, the schematic, the schematic yeah. and you would just make your own Kovacs. I remember yeah. coming to my friend's house, and uh, it was very, uh, very popular uh, in, in I know in Poland because everybody I meet who is Polish, they're like, "Do you remember Kovacs?" And nobody else ever brings it up. Uh, right. But like, I do remember Kovacs too, way later too, because uh, I remember uh, my friend had it. It was just like a dongle, uh, put it in your parallel port, put the other end like into your stereo. Uh, press record because you had to you know you had to pipe out the sound from the, the actual you know if you bought the because disney sound source is essentially the same thing yes right? yes it, only it's... only with a speaker yeah. and the knob 
Yeah, it, it has some differences. It does. I know that some of the things are not quite compatible for some on reason. On the lowest level, right? Yeah, yeah. like uh, I've seen that like not work. But uh, for the main part, it's basically just that thing. You just pipe yeah, out yeah, a simple yeah. V line out to it. It's the same concept. Yeah. yeah. So like I remember my friend like um, uh, put it into his stereo, pressed record, and off we went. And it was like a bunch of games. Uh, supported that in fact what i also did bring up on the other podcast but now i can confirm that i actually found it um i have uh, a russian uh driver for uh mid-80s uh, sierra games for the sierra ega games uh in the high-res ega games not the uh, the ones made with the sci zero engine uh, that allows playing uh, the tansy music and uh, sound effects for those sierra games uh through PC speaker or Kovacs. Uh, one of the podcasts reminded me about it, and I later went through my old hard drive backups and actually found it. Uh, I need to upload it somewhere. It's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite uh, interesting that you brought the um, the Tandy because uh, going further uh, on our uh, discussion, uh, Tandy One Thousand was pretty much a PC Junior clone. Mm-hmm. Um, they even they, they, it was such 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 on, on being a clone on a PC Junior that they even the the, the original Tandy One Thousand because some people might think of the Tandy One Thousand as on the uh, SX and the TX, right? But there was an earlier machine. Um, the Tandy 1000 and the ten uh, the Tandy 1000 HD the HD obviously with a hard drive but anyway the Tandy 1000 um, it didn't even have a DMA like the PC Junior so it was that close to the PC Junior and they brought in their uh, expanded CGA from the PC Junior and the uh, same sound chip so I guess uh, and of course uh, they did it so well Tandy. Uh, they did not repeat the uh, same mistakes that I- IBM did on the uh, on the PC Junior, and of course, um, I mean Tandy, the Tandy Corporation. I mean, you could go everywhere uh, in America. Right. Uh, it's like it's like I would guess it's finding a Radio Shack in America it would be like finding a McDonald's or or Starbucks. Uh, at that there's, point, yes, they they they, they got very one, popular. Not anymore. They're, they're, one, they're closing. But but at that time, oh yeah 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 yeah. But at yeah, that I time, there too. was everywhere. Yes. Yeah, uh, but there was one everywhere, so you'd get support, and of course, this is well known. And the, the Tandy, um, I mean, they, they went through, and and their standard went on, and and uh, the PC Junior standard became known as the Tandy standard. So, loads of games started to be made for the Tandy One Thousand, and they looked so good, and right. played so good, and I mean, great sound. And uh, Tandy kept on uh, improving their models so much that in the next uh, SX machines and TX, they, they finally added DMA, which was quite good. And uh, on later models, they 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 did additional enhancements on their um, on the graphics modes. Actually, they expanded quite a bit the graphics modes to the point which which you could. Um, I do not remember, but you would have a higher resolution mode. Mm-hmm. Where you could have sixteen colors at once, mm-hmm. um, and you would also have a Tandy deck, which was something similar to what a Sound Blaster could do. So there were a few games that would play um, a lot better on on the um, from the uh, SL to the TL models and up. Uh, that would play great, great, and uh, of course um, for 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 us Europeans. 
Um, I mean, you can get a Tandy, of course, because it was an American company. Right. And uh, unfortunately, those games were only available uh, for uh, for Americans. So uh, the only technology that were um, that came uh, to Europe was the uh, the next thing from IBM, which was the AT, which I guess. Um, even today, I think the AT is probably the uh, base, and probably that's why I always thought as the, the 286 as being the base, uh, because even today um, there's a level of soft still software comp- compatibility with with the with an AT machine. Right. Um, uh, 16-bit. They they added a, a second DMA controller, so you would now have a bigger. A lot bigger window of DMA to to use uh, peripherals and other devices on on your computer. Um, the 286 was an amazing CPU. I mean, amazing for its time. Uh, it, I mean, it was released in 1982. Of course, it was only started to be used much later because it was too expensive to do a 16-bit architecture, and like in 1981 or something like 1982, something like that. So, um, yeah, 1984. Uh, it appeared the AT, and it was actually deemed as a computer that was too fast. So <laughs> IBM, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, yeah, it was too fast. So they kind of were again conservative with the clock speeds, uh, introducing only at six megahertz, and uh, um, they even put some wait states on the memory to 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 make it even slower. In in such an extent that there was uh, another version of the XT called the XT two eighty six. That um, had a 286 chip, of course, but it had zero-state memory. So what would happen is that the uh, XT286 was actually faster than the original IBM AT. So, um, uh, I mean, IBM were always too conservative uh, on on their machines, which clones, uh, I guess, for for the good of of the standard, uh, always tried to push them forward. So 286 and EGA, again, at least was the thing that could, I mean, at least bring the PC to something that the Tandy was already doing so well. Um, because EGA was somewhat similar to what um, Tandy graphics could do. And uh, with the exception, of course, of PC speaker, again, for quite a few years, uh, nothing nothing else than, than the PC speaker was there. Right. So... Um, yeah, as he, as we were saying, uh, yeah, IBM AT and EGA, and we reach a point where we're 1986, 1987, and finally, finally, uh, we get uh, sound devices. Right. Um, so 1987, um, IBM uh, had this card called the IBM Music Feature Card, which was overpriced, and it, it was actually made by Yamaha. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the IBM music feature was based on on uh, external device, pretty much like the Roland MT32, which we can talk a little bit as well, um, called the Yamaha FB01, which was a 1984 external device, which was, again, pretty much based on, on the FM technology. Right. Um, the AdLib had um, a two-op uh, FM chip, and the IBM Music Feature Card and the Yamaha FB01 had a four-op um, chip, uh, which was a lot more capable than what the OPL AdLib sound chip could do. And uh, I don't know uh, if you ever—I mean, I don't know if you listen to um, 1980s songs, mm-hmm. 
but um, there's there was this keyboard called the Yamaha DX7. Right, of course, the the, the legendary synthesizer. Yeah, the yeah. legendary synthesizer that was based on an eight op mm, FM nice. chip. Interesting. Um, which was quite capable, and you would hear songs like, of course, "Take on Me" by yes. Aha, which had that very distinctive electric bass. I mean, when you hear that song, you cannot, you cannot, especially if you like FM synthesis, mm-hmm. and I love FM. So synthesis. do I. It's like my my, my best, my, my most favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, there's no way you don't hear that electric bass on that song. Of course. Yeah, FM was was FM synthesis was was a big thing on the on the 80s, quite popular, and. Um, this guy from so IBM had the IBM Music Feature Card, really not um, supported by by a lot of um, developers. And right. here enters Sierra again, because Sierra did a lot, and this is where I, I absolutely take my hat off for them. Uh, Sierra did a lot for 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 sound devices. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's quite a few obscure ones. Of course, uh, not only they did support the IBM music feature card, mm-hmm. but they did have a patch for the I- Yamaha FP01, um, which, yeah, sounds pretty much like an IBM music feature card because the IBM music feature card was obviously based on the Yamaha, but, uh, which, uh, I got, I got, actually got a, a cheap one, uh, and it sounds pretty good. It's like AdLib, but, with more polyphony and and more sounds and it sounds better, it's very very interesting. Actually, before I came to to live in in England, I um, on my retro rig, um, which I can bring into the UK, unfortunately, but I I, I actually played Space Quests on with the uh, Yamaha FP01. Oh, nice! And it's it, it it's it's a different experience, and it's it, because I like FM synthesis. It's, it sounds quite nice. Awesome. I really like it. That's very interesting. And um, there's another uh, obscure uh, synthesizer that was used by Sierra, which were some Casio keyboards. And some people might not know this, but it's actually through. And and um, there's one called the Casio CSM1, which was an external device, um, like a rack device, something like that. And that that synthesizer was supported in some Sierra games. And I think a good example of that is Colonel, uh, Colonel's Bequest. Mm-hmm. That's a good example. And uh, although uh, on paper uh, the uh, synthesizer itself, the specs are not impressive, um, it sounds quite good. There's there's a, th- a thread on on the, this website called uh, Quest Studios, mm-hmm. and um, the people around there are very much into sound standards and, and so on. So uh, there's a thread there about this Casio device, and they had some sound examples. Actually, a few more games were supported. Space Quest Three as well supported the Casio. I think Silphie did as well. And there was another game, Sierra game that I'm, I'm scratching my head. I'm trying to remember. It was something. Was, like an, was, uh, was it an adventure game or was it? A, a, it it was an board? adventure game, and I, th- I, th- I think it was also by Jim Walls, the guy who did Police. Quest. Oh, the code name Weissman. Exactly, that's the game. That's the game, exactly. Um, and yeah, that supported the um, the uh, the Casio device as well. So, yeah, I mean, Sierra was awesome in terms of supporting... Uh, and they had great composers working with them, too. Oh, of course. Of course, there's a great example of Space Quest 3, which I, I absolutely love the the uh, soundtrack mm-hmm. on Space amazing. Quest 3, which was amazing at that time. And, um, yeah, I mean, 1987, um, 
got the uh, introduction of uh, there was this guy in Canada he was a, prof a professor of uh, Canadian University and at that time of course there weren't any options um, uh, for, for sound devices on PC so he wanted to have something so he made this company called AdLib uh, and they, he got his engineers and they designed this car which pre was pretty much glue logic off the shelf parts mm -hmm. and um, of course the uh, very well known YM 3812 mm -hmm. FM chip the OPL2 love it uh, uh, love it too, man. I mean, uh, it's quite funny that AdLib at that time, when they, they they were manufacturing the car and they were scraping the the white the white the label mm -hmm. on on the chip, mm -hmm. uh, because I guess they didn't want um, anybody to know what chip they were using. But that was quite I mean that was quite silly silly thing to do. They they could have, I mean, they could have tried to get a deal with Yamaha to get some exclusive contract to get this chip mm -hmm. you know but they merely uh, scraped the chip uh, white label um, which was quite dumb uh, and of course we know the story that a creative took advantage of that later of course but uh, anyway um, yeah Adlib was trying to to get um, their sound device and they went to Sierra of course mm -hmm. and the first game uh, that supported Adlib was actually King's Quest 4 mm -hmm. I guess the King, King's Quest 4 was quite was a game that um was quite um, uh, revolutionary at the time. Not only um, they introduced their SCI engine, uh, which I liked um, up to the point uh, they started to use their point-and-click, their point-and-click uh, thing. CR Adventure games for me are pretty much those AGI and SCI zero games. Right. Um, yeah. That. That's that's one thing. So um, yeah, I mean, Adlib, awesome, yeah, awesome. I agree. It, it got it. It got so many support. I mean, the support was very rampant. The only thing that was uh, available at the time that um, Adlib was around was obviously the Roland MT32, right. which was an external device, extremely expensive. Um, not only you need to have the external device, but you would have to have um, a, a Roland MPU interface. Which was uh, an ISA card that you would put on your computer, and then you would need to connect a cable into your MPU 401 uh, breakout box, mm. uh, and it used an intelligent mode MPU 401. Which uh, what it, what it did was uh, it could actually um, upload custom sounds into the uh, uh, Roland MT32 sound bank. So you could use custom sounds on the Roland MT32. Uh, that's one of the things awesome about the uh, Roland MT32. Some games did not do that, right? But uh, pretty much every Sierra game, right? Uh, they always did have that. some kind of weird, uh, weird yeah. patch going on for for an yeah, MT32 exactly. sound because they needed, yeah, for adventure games like doors opening, and uh, of course you can hear that on Space Quest, on Space Quest Three. As soon as Roger Wirkel gets out of of his spaceship on that. Um, um, dump a uh, huge chip just on the beginning of, of the game mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can hear the, the door opening and that's a, a custom um, Roland NT32 sound that is uploaded into the um, into the uh, into the unit but you needed to have that not only you needed to get of course the the, the external unit but you need to have the, the Roland MP, MPU interface as well mm -hmm. so uh, Sierra was at that time offering um uh, not only their games, but they would sell directly um, 
those uh, sound devices to, to the to, to the people directly, and uh, they were even they, they would even offer for people who, who were interested in um, audio tape, a cassette tape with uh, example sounds from from their games, <laughs> uh, which people could <laughs> which people could hear on and listen to their soundtracks and then decide. I, I, I guess that a lot of people were blown out by their Roland MV32 sounds, but not everybody could buy one, uh, especially at that time. I, I have one today. Uh, obviously, you can get for 10 times less money that you could get on that time, on those days. But um, yeah, I mean, Roland MV32 was the only... Uh, other option that was uh, available past AdLib. Um, so, so many more games support the AdLib. And some other obscure devices start to appear. Um, I, I remember reading about um, there was a, a game called by Microprose called Gunship. Right. And there's one version where uh, on the documentation of the game, they mention a, car, uh, a sound card, a uh, soundboard uh, called as the Entertainer, which was based on the SID chip, on the legendary SID chip of the uh, Commodore 64. Oh. And um, at that time, I guess something happened, uh, so that project was canceled. But that came to fruition. Uh, with a, a soundboard called Innovation SSI 2001. I don't know if you ever heard of no, this soundboard. No, never heard of it. But this soundboard is actually has um, a SID chip on it. And a few companies committed to it. Uh, Origin was one of them. So uh, there's a few Origin games where you can hear Innovation SSI uh, sounds, which was SID chip. And that one of one example of that is Ultima Eight. Right. Oh, oh uh, sorry. Ultima. Sorry. Ultima, Ultima six, six. Right. Uh, yeah, that'll be six. around that time. Okay. Around that time, um, the false prophet, mm-hmm. and you can hear, and, and it sounds beautiful, man. It sounds absolutely beautiful. There are other microprose, of course, because they were committed into this entertainer card, and somehow, I guess, it went away, and innovation company took out t- took the project on. So I guess that microprose became committed to them following that. There were a few games, uh, microprose games that supported is uh, supported the innovation sound uh, board as well. A good example of that is um, F19 Stealth Fighter. Mm-hmm. There's a few videos on YouTube that you could probably search on that. And and uh, um, there's another game called Airball. Airball supported the innovation as well. Harpoon, um, Bad Blood. That's another good example. And, uh, I mean, the innovation SSI was doomed only to be supported by like 10 or 11 games. But it was such an obscure device at that time. Unfortunately, it, it went away. But, um, it's kind of funny how things happen. Um, actually, a couple of, uh, three or four years ago, um, there was this project on Vogons. Someone started to do a replica of that card. <laughs> and, uh, the, the schematics went on and people started to draw the schematics. And there's an actually a, a replica being built as we speak. Nice. I guess, I guess the, um, the project is, is on the, the last revisions of the card. And actually is a, a fellow Russian of yours that's, that's doing the, uh, the PCB designs and, 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 and testing the cards. And there's quite a few videos on YouTube of that. So in the future, we will have an innovation, uh, replica clone that we can, can, can have. And it's, for me, it's quite interesting. I'm very interested in that because I'm very into obscure, 
uh, sound devices and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, that was a very interesting sound device that unfortunately didn't pay off because the SID chip sounds quite nice. Yes. Um, there's another, yeah, of course, a creative. Um, there's a story about um, the, the president. Creative was a, a, a Singapore-based company, and they, they, they wanted to um, uh, get into game developers and promoting their sound device, which was called the uh, Creative Music System, which was, again, a simple, simple card based on, on uh, two um, sound chips, which were pretty much off-the-shelf parts. Again, they would put stickers on the chips so that nobody uh, would care about what was below and nobody see, but it was pretty much off-the-shelf parts. It was actually a couple of Philips SAA 10990P chips, which um, were square wave generators, pretty much like the PC speaker. And um, each each of those chips could do six voices at a time. And um, it, because it had a second chip, the card was capable of doing uh, 12 uh, voices. So what they did is that they split the chips and they put one on, on the left channel and the other on the right channel. So with with the creative music system, you could hear st- stereo sounds for, for the first time on a, on a PC device, other than the uh, Roland MT32, of course. But, but um, it wasn't, again, very successful. Um, but it was a very important, it was a very important visit by the, the, uh, creative president because when he presented, uh, the creative music system on, to game developers, they weren't so impressed and they were kind of like, uh, you know, we, what we need is a car that not only can do, uh, this, that can only do, um, music and sound effects, but can, can also do, um, PCM and digitized. So they started to work on, on a project. That was announced in 1988, called the Killer Card, and th- this the, the uh, this project was actually for for a few time known as the Killer Card in, in such a way that I was kind of browsing into old magazines that are available on the internet, and um, I could actually uh, check that out and see that uh, some articles about sound devices back in 1989 or so, um, mentioning this killer card by a company called Creative that already had the uh, Creative Music, music System, uh, w- which was also known as the Game Blaster because Radio Shack was uh, selling uh, Creative uh, Music System cards uh, re- rebranded as Game Blasters. Um, but uh, as, soon as, as soon as they released it in November 1989, I mean that was the thing to go. I mean the card was was um was advertised as a, a 23 voice card which was kind of dubious uh, because yes it was a 23 voice card but you can get the 23 uh voices at once and this was kind of you know PR marketing purely marketing because what the card had was uh not only the uh FM synthesis chip, the Yamaha 3812, which gave total 100% ad-lib compatibility, which was so important. But it also had the um, CMS chips that uh, were on the creative music system. So they, they, they basically added the numbers up. 11 FM sounds with 12 um, square wave generators uh, give those 23, and that was a little bit of marketing. Uh, but the Sound Blaster, yeah, it was compatible with the CMS, although no, no, pretty much nobody cared anymore for for Game Blaster compatibility. And uh, as soon as f- some games started to support the Sound Blaster, I mean, that's how 
other companies started to appear that tried to uh, do some soundboards that could do the same that the Sound Blaster was doing. And, uh, of course, uh, Wing Commander is such a great example right. of a game that uh, you, you absolutely have to have a Sound Blaster. Um, I mean, it, it, it was such, such a great moment in computer history. The, the, the first, the first Sound Blaster, which was dubbed as the, uh, killer card. Um, so yeah, 1989, um, of course, it took a little bit of time to, uh, to, for, for game developers to, to actually support those sound devices. Um, so still in 1989, uh, the same we already talked about Kovox, but they they actually had another card called the uh, another obscure that actually went obscure because it was so little supported. It was the Kov- the Kovox Soundmaster, which was uh, a card that not only had a DAC, which could do the, pretty much the same as the Soundblaster could do, but instead of them um, having AdLib uh, compatibility, they instead chose to um, to to use a chip. That was a slightly altered version of the sound chip that was a feature on the computer called the Atari ST, which was a, a general instrument AY eighty nine thirty chip, which was a three three voice um, uh, sound generator, which had I think it had a white noise channel as well. But um, unfortunately for Kovacs, um, this card wasn't widely supported, and uh, it's probably one of the most rare. Uh, an obscure sound devices today uh, in such a way that I think that only two uh, cards are known to exist today. Wow. Um, actually, I because the Innovation SSI, which I already talked about, uh, was being replicated, I actually launched a thread on Vogons about the Kovac Soundmaster and I got, con- I got into contact with uh, a guy that actually owns a Kovac uh, Soundmaster and I asked I asked him about the possibility of uh, also replicating this card, and since he's a kind of an, an electrical engineer as well, he he told me he would be up to it. Mm-hmm. So so I guess in the future uh, I'm hopeful for a, a Kovacs uh, Soundmaster um, uh, replica as well. Nice. And I think I think I think this is really cool. This is really cool not to uh, have this sound ma- uh, sound devices die. Right. And, well, of course, it's very important to preserve history, especially yeah. in nowadays. Those things sort of become really, really obscure, and not a lot of things are even documented. So those things, like if you don't, if we don't have a chance to preserve them now, then who yeah, knows absolutely. what's going to happen yeah. in the and, future? And with, yeah, and 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 with the. Uh, Companies that do electronics recycling and uh, they do gold harvesting on these cards and these electronic devices, these things only get more rare and rare. So yeah, basically we're we're in 1989. I mean, sound devices started to appear uh, in such in such a way that even Roland, um, who acknowledged that their Roland MT32 was was being used, uh, they actually introduced a new sound, a new. Um, external device, which was actually backwards compatible with uh, Roland MT32. Not 100% backwards compatible, but very highly backwards compatible. And not only did that by supporting uh, the uh, Roland MT32 sound banks, but they also added uh, 33 uh, additional sound effects like uh, gunshot and and um, engine, car engine and uh, jet engine and stuff like that. 
and they did actually did also um if I remember correctly an internal version of that um sound uh, external device which was called the Roland LIPCI um, uh, sometimes people mistakenly refer to this card as the LAPC1 which is incorrect because um, L- uh, the I actually means I for IBM because they, they not only uh, released these sound devices for, for the American and European market but they also released it on the Japanese market which had their um, proprietary uh, NEC Japanese computers and um there were the um they had their um obviously their uh, uh japanese versions right. uh, of of those sound devices going forward uh 1990 and and we're getting to 1990 and of course the 386 was introduced in uh, 1985 mm-hmm. but but uh, you know just like the 286 uh it was too advanced and too expensive to implement at that time because the the 386 would uh, it, it was a 32-bit fully 32-bit architecture, and uh, it was so important at that time because it, it, it made so it was such a leap forward. I mean, people uh, people can say that uh, the 386 wasn't a big uh, speed improvement over the 286. It wasn't. It's true, but. Uh, the 386 was internally so much advanced than the 286 in such a way that uh, not only it had, of course, the backwards compatibility with real mode and protected mode, right. which which the 286 in- initially uh, introduced, but it also had this virtual 8086 mode, which uh, could you could go into this compatibility mode and r- run software. Uh, that was originally originally for for real mode, and not only that, but the the processor could sw- switch back and forth with between these modes without without doing uh, an hardware reset, which was very important. Uh, actually, the two eighty six because couldn't do this. Uh, Bill Gates is credited as mentioning uh, the two eighty six as a brain dead chip. Um, and of course, Windows. Um, as soon as you, for instance, if if you're um, uh, on DOS, mm-hmm. and you're with a 286 or a 386. If you run Windows, it immediately shuts off and goes into protected mode. mode. Yeah. Of course, of course, the 286 couldn't do that, and the 386 introduced that, and it was so important. Uh, of course, that for people who don't care so much about um, hardware, they don't uh, recognize that. But for programmers, it was very, very important. But um, yeah, I mean, 1985 it was introduced. Actually, it was announced. In 85, but it was only ready uh, to be introduced in 1986. Um, I guess that um, it was so expensive, so expensive that at that time that uh, only probably two years later you would start to see some OEMs um, doing computers with 386, and because it was still expensive, even in 88, what uh, what was common to see was uh, like a, a low um, like a cut-down version of the of the 386, which was the X the SX version, mm-hmm. the 386SX, which which was pretty much could do only a 16 bit. It was internally it was still 32 bit, but it could only access to a 16 bit uh, bus, which obviously would make your motherboard much simpler and a lot a lot less expensive. So um, the uh, 386SX was pretty common, I guess, in, uh, in 88 and 89, the, tri- the time frame that we are now. And um, it's actually, it's funny because it's still regarded 
as um, I mean, 286 started to, I mean, get uh, better motherboards. So people with fast motherboards within a 286, for instance, um, there's um, it's quite talked on the internet that uh, a fast motherboard 286 at 16 megahertz could usually beat uh, a 386 SX at 16 megahertz because of um, I mean uh, constraints with the uh, not only the uh, 386 SX bus, but but also because that to save some money implementing these uh, the 386 SX you would use like uh, again slower memory or or weight states or something like that that would obviously slow down uh, the machine not not only that but also chipsets would uh, by 88 for the 286 they were already quite quite advanced and and, and quite um, mature. But that wasn't so true for for the 386. So as we're reaching 1990, now we're starting to see more 386, and we start to see okay maybe 386 DX25, which was I guess starting to appear in 1990, um, and that allowed for uh, better games. And uh, as an example of this, I would say again going to of course you already had. A podcast about flight simulators, but I cannot go without uh, mentioning a Falcon mm-hmm. 3.0. Of course, yes. Um, great game, great game, very advanced, very well programmed as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Spectrum Holobyte, uh, the guys really, really, really did a great job on that game. And um, I actually, a few days ago, while I was researching for this podcast, I actually um, was going through those old magazines of that era, and I saw a commercial. For an A10 game, um, and the, the the game was called Avenger A10, and it was actually uh, a game that you could merge with Falcon 3.0, and they supported they had this plan and they supported multiplayer for those games where, for instance, one you could player play, would play as a, yeah, as a as with a, the FX16 and the other player with the A10. Wow, I had no uh, idea. Yeah, I, I I didn't have to, and <laughs> I just discovered this. Um, a couple, a couple of uh, days ago, and I was surprised to see that I, I saw it because they in the ad you could see even the box, the uh, very big box for, well, for, for for for. Of course, you know the uh, oh, Falcon Three I, box. It's uh, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that game. Uh, I mean, it, it was amazing. It used, it it, it was it, it was an early example of a game that could use a, a floating point processor. Mm-hmm. That at that time was not uh, included uh, in chip inside the, the same package of of a, a processor. It was an external option that you could have. You could have an external coprocessor, and that would that would be your FPU. That uh, the the first time that they integrated the uh, floating point unit circuitry into the processor uh, was on the 486. So that game benefited heavily from a floating point uh, unit because I guess the game had so many. Calculations for avionics and weapon systems and things like and things like that. It was it was needed. So uh, this game uh, that they were planning, the Avenger uh, A10, they actually had to scrap it because you know I I saw the ad on on the magazine and I started to search for the game because I I, I wanted to have a copy of it obviously. Uh, so I start to uh, to search for it and um, I I. I don't find anything, and the only thing I, I was able to to find was um, this Google Groups discussion from 1999 or something like that, mm-hmm. where um, people were discussing why this game wasn't released, and uh, it, it what happened was 
the programmers uh, figured out that because the A-10 was, of course, a, a close air support aircraft that has to fly slow and has to fly low, um, obviously you would need to render a lot more detail on the ground. And that was so heavy on the hardware at that time. And of course, we're talking again, uh, we're talking of 1990. That's the time frame we're in. Right. So, uh, 1990, um, 386DX25, that was probably, um, what you had at that time. The uh, 486 was introduced in 1989, but it, again, it was the same story. It was too expensive to, to actually be practical to, to have in a, in a, in a clone or OEM machine. So, um, it, it was so heavy that they had to can that project. So what they did is um, they went backwards and they did other planes like the F-18 and the MiG-29 as well. So they, they, they added on those modules so they can the Avenger, which I was like, oh, man, I, w- I wish that's I... That's unfortunate. I, yeah, that, sounds, that sounded really cool, the m- multiplayer-wise. To, to the end of 1990, 386 is now very dominant. And, uh, of course, Sound Blaster is dominating pretty much everything. I mean, it's selling well. It's selling very well. Um, uh, actually, I think the Disney sound source was introduced in 1990. I'm not sure, but I think it was introduced in 1990. Um, several versions of it were released. I actually have, I think, the earliest box of the uh, Disney sound source, which was a kind of a black box. There was a later re-release, which is more like a green greenish yellow box which said now it supports windows something like that and there's actually something funny um i saw a, a review of clint uh, lazy game reviews and he mm-hmm. did of uh, the uh, disney sound source and he read through the documentation and he mentions um a very well-known um computer um uh, commentator and editor which was john c vorak um, he used to write for PC World, I think. I mm-hmm. think it was PC World. And he mentioned that um, something like, um, this is the sound standard for the future. This is going <laughs> to dominate everything. <laughs> and so much for your predictions, man. Because, <laughs> I mean, I guess that because of the price, it was attractive. But, I mean, the thing could support, I mean, of course, it could do DAC, it could do uh, PCM, but obviously it couldn't do... FM music or or um, ad lib compatibility, so right. it was pretty much doomed. So shame on John C. Varg. You should have uh, researched more before he would say something like that. But anyway, um, so 1991 was also a big, big. Um, uh, not so much in terms of um, platforms. Uh, you would start to see like um, Intel would have topped out on their 386 at 33 megahertz and at the time they had uh, of course AMD um, I think AMD was still in court at that at that time because uh, of course we mentioned this in the beginning of the podcast that um, IBM uh, asked for second sources so uh, Intel had a contract with not only with AMD but with other companies as well for uh, cloning uh, of and second sourcing of the, of their CPUs, uh, um, so Intel uh, when they released the 386, they uh, suddenly they adopted another strategy, which was okay, we're going to deny um, the 386 to uh, to the other companies uh, because we want to profit uh, all to ourselves. Um, so Intel for AMD, that was not legal because. 
as far as AMD was concerned, they had a contract and they were sticking to it. So, um, of course, it went to court and uh, the uh, 386, um, the AM3 version, the, the AM386 version stayed tied up in court for quite a, a few years. So, um, um, I guess that in 1991, it was still in court. So, the um, I think the most... Um, oh no no! Actually, the AM3 uh, the AM theaters was released in 1991. Actually, in the end of 1991. Um, at that time, I think Intel was already uh, it was common already to see the uh, DX33, and uh, AMD was um, was releasing their um, lower powered versions of of those CPUs. Um, the 33 megahertz was actually released in 1991 as well by AMD. Only a year later, they released their, their um, kind of follow-up on that on the uh, 40 megahertz bus. But um, actually, I'm glad I I remember that because I, I thought it was 1992. So it stayed up in court until 1991. <clears throat> so um, it immediately expo- exploded. Uh, the 386 market because uh, AMD was offering uh, their CPUs for for lower much lower prices than Intel. Uh, pretty much AMD had to do it. So uh, um, in 1991 there was an explosion uh, of um, of 386 machines. Uh, they become obviously thanks to AMD more affordable. So uh, I guess it not only reflected on games but in in hardware as well uh so much that in um 1991 uh, actually creative uh introduced their pro um sound cards their sound blaster pro cards uh not only they did that they introduced the pro but they also introduced a revised uh version of their first sound blaster um they kind of made the 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 card smaller and cheaper to produce and it was called the uh, sound blaster basically sound blaster 2.0 mm-hmm. and uh they they what they did was they still wanted to keep the CMS compatibility the creative music system but um not only you have to um put your uh, your philips chips in the sockets but they added a third chip which was <clears throat> you would have to get from creative you would have to call them or send them a, a letter or something to ask them the, the chip, which was a, a PAL, a, pro, a programmable array logic, which was a chip where they, it, it's pretty much zeros and ones, pretty much binary logic. And um, they need that chip in order to CMS work. So, um, I, and I'm mentioning this because a few years ago, um, there was a, a guy that has a blog on vintage computer forums called Chuck G., he was able to dump the contents of the um, the, the creative uh, pal. So um, he dumped the contents, and uh, everybody now was able to um, program the exact same logic to um, a gal, which is a, a generic array logic, which uh, is pretty much like comparing uh, EEPROMs with EEPROMs, which can be reused. So a gal is to an EEPROM like what a pal is to an EEPROM. Okay. Um, um, so what happened was everybody was now able to, I could get, you know, from eBay a, a gal program with that logic, put on my Sound Blaster 2.0, and voila, I would have uh, Sound Blaster 2.0 sounds. So that was a very cool um, project that the community was able to resolve. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, for quite a few years, no one could get uh, their Sound Blaster 2.0s upgraded. 
but with this project uh, we now can and so I actually have a video on, on my YouTube channel um, because we we found that um, I mean creative was uh, cre- I mean they did so much revisions loads of revisions on, on their cards and at the time they were, they were introducing their sound blaster pro um, they then introduced the sound blaster pro uh, two as well later but um, they had this chip on their card which is the bus chip that uh, does everything internally there um, and uh, they introduced um, later a, 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 a version the chip is the uh, CT3036A or the um, the version without an A so what we found was that um, on cards that have the um, CT 1336A, the the uh, CMS upgrade is not going to work because uh, I guess that um, Creative did something on the chip where it doesn't support um, CMS anymore in, in so much way that we started to contact people that would have um, box versions of their Sound Blaster 2.0s and go to the, check your manual to see if there's any <laughs> reference to CMS at all. And what we found was that in every card with um, the uh, that had the CT3036A bus chip, there was no mention to the um, to the uh, CMS uh, upgrade. So okay, that's one thing to to take a mental note. The only cards that can be upgraded are the um, the ones with the uh, CT3036 with no A afterwards. Mm-hmm. So those work, and the ones with the A won't work. So uh, that's another option for someone who wants to get CMS because Game Blaster cards. Are quite quite rare right now, but anyway, uh, moving forward, um, Sound Blaster Pro was a, a great thing, a big thing. Uh, the first, the reason why there were two versions, I guess, was because um, the original Sound Blaster Pro it had um, not only um, one uh, Yamaha uh, 3812, uh, they added a second one for stereo. And what that does uh, is that not only the uh, y- the uh, 3812 has problems uh, with um, faster machines, mm-hmm. um, the chip has problems, and you're going to hear corrupted notes, and it's going to sound wrong. Um, but a, a, a thing that is quite particular about this card is that some games uh, supported uh, the dual OPL2 chips directly. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, if you fire up a game, of course, that uh, when Sound Blaster Pro 2 was was um, done, what they did is that they replaced the um, OPL2 chips, both of them, mm-hmm. for a single uh, OPL3, yeah. which uh, could do, instead of the um, um, 11 voices that the um, 3812 could do, mm-hmm. it could do double that. So uh, pretty much the uh, OPL2 was capable of what two chip two uh, in theory of course uh, it could do what OPL2 two OPLs2 uh, could do. So uh, the problem was is that um, because of the way the hardware was made uh, and was accessed while some games were programmed, there are some games that support um, not only the uh, Sound Blaster Pro but they support also the Pro 2. So um, you actually, in some games, and a good example of this is a game that I love, which is Fleet Defender, which is, was mm-hmm. an F-14 um, simulator. Uh, you go into the setup, and you go into choose the sound card that you want, and you have Sound, Pl- uh, sound Blaster Pro Old, and right. you have Sound Blaster Pro New. Mm-hmm. And when you hear those two cards, they sound quite... Um, it's like... Um, 
it's like the the first Sound Blaster Pro has more polyphony. It, it's like you can hear a little bit more sounds uh, on 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 the tunes, and and um, there's actually a good thread on Quest Studios. There's a site called Quest Studios, mm-hmm. um, and there's a thread called um, Dual OPL2 Supremacy. I, I recommend everyone to check that out. It's called Dual OPL2 Supremacy, and you can see examples of games that supported the uh, dual OPL2 on the Sound Blaster Pro and they actually sound better sound a little bit better than the um, Sound Blaster Pro 2 with the uh, OPL3 chip I mean creative were very cheap a lot of people um, uh, I mean of course we have to give them credit for what they did but they were very very cheap and um, they could uh, make their cards I mean sound a lot better in terms of noise sound to noise ratio and stuff like that but um it was also about the, the components that you used on your card, mm-hmm. even the uh, internal amplifiers uh, that you would use on the card. The circuitry could make it sound slightly different. So creative for their Sound Blaster 16 cards, and I'm glad that you mentioned it, um, how they would sound different is because they would have like clone versions of their OPL, of Yamaha OPL chips. Mm-hmm. So on some uh, Sound Blaster 16s, you're not going to see a true OPL chip, but a clone like um for instance uh, there's um they had a chip called the CT1747 uh which was made by Creative and they licensed um OPL3 from from Yamaha and they included the uh the core from OPL3 and they put it on their uh CT1747 so people um mention CT1747 um, cards as being 100% OPL3 compatible, which is true. It is, it is, um, it is an OPL3 in there, a true OPL3 in there, but because of different circuitry, it's not going to sound exactly, exactly the same. Um, and later, um, creative got cheaper and, uh, they didn't want to include, uh, OPL anymore. So they did what's called CQM, which was quadrature, uh, emulation. Which uh, they try to emulate uh, OPL and it sounds tinny and fizzy yeah. and I hate it. I don't yeah, like it at so all. Do I, yeah. I don't like it at all. But as far as um, games that supported um, OPL three and we were moving forward on on that, um, 1991 and 1992 as well. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of games that supported it. Of course, I'm going to mention one that it's probably 1995, but Tyrian. Okay. Or yes. Tyrian. Or Tyrian. Um, that's that's one game that I I absolutely I mean you can bring uh, you can play GM on that on that game you can play Gravis ultrasound you can play um, other sound devices but for me that game the soundtrack sounds best on OPL3 it sounds so good on OPL3 and I cannot I, I like I like GM as well and I do have two um, GM uh, devices I have a, a Roland sound canvas and the Yamaha um, XG uh, MU80, um, but uh, I, for that game, I pr- I actually prefer um, I actually prefer GM. So anyway, let's move forward. And um, yeah, 1991, uh, Sound Blaster Pro 2 became pretty much the uh, the uh, most used card in such a way that today, when you build a retro system, it's probably the number one. Um, the number one recommended card, but uh, some hardware appeared as well. Um, there was a company called Media Vision, and they introduced a, um, the, a board called. It was uh, 
tried to be Sound Blaster 1 compatible, which was the Thunderboard. Um, they included their um, YM3812 chip, um, and they had that own, their own DAC in there, which was uh, supposedly Sound Blaster compatible. That was a good card, uh, sell well, did good for media vision. But at the same time, they introduced a new card called the Pro Audio Spectrum, mm-hmm. which was also a dual OPL2 card. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this card was introduced before Sound Blaster Pro which also had the dual OPL2. So the first time um, dual, OPL, dual OPL2 was, was existed was with the Pro Audio Spectrum. And uh, the same thing goes with the Pro Audio Spectrum. Games that support directly the Pro, the pro Audio Spectrum, spectrum with the uh, um, dual OPL2 sound sound very, very good and often sound superior to um, OPL3-based um, um uh, support on the same game, um, so yeah. Media, not only Media Vision was awesome on that part, but the, their cards were uh, of higher standard than than Creative. They had less noise; they were less noisy. Uh, their DAC was a lot had a lot more quality, a lot clearer sound. Um, unfortunately, they kind of went away. There was some kind of um, scandal in um, Silicon Valley. Hmm. And uh, the investors lo- lost. There were, I think, there was up to two hundred million dollars in damages for um, for uh, investors in Media Vision, and wow. there were shady practices, shady practices, and very, very strange uh, stuff happened because Media Vision was quite capable, and their sound devices were quite good, and they had quite good support as well. So yeah, that was a shame. Uh, that was a shame for them because they were quite good. 1992, um, you would start to, uh, now in 1992, you start to get 486s. Mm-hmm. Um, and 486 was such such a huge, uh, it, it was a leap because uh, not only you'd get um, your FPU integrated, uh, and for games that, that wasn't so much important, but um, it made the, uh, the, uh, the chip a lot more difficult to, to, to and expensive to to do, mm-hmm. but um, the utmost important um, improvement on the 486 was the uh, the, the cache. Uh, for the first time, the uh, the CPU had a a small amount of, of cache uh, memory SRAM uh, on die, and because of that, it speeded up um, instructions so much that um, uh, it, it it was probably I think the the jump. From the four four eighty six to the three eighty six was actually bigger than it was from the three eighty six to the two eighty six uh, from a proportional view. Um, the cache uh, speeds up things so much because now the cache is on die. the 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 CPU doesn't have to address an external cache of, uh, by the uh, via the uh, ISA bus, which ran at seven megahertz, of course. A uh, big bottleneck in there, so the cache was running at the same speed that the CPU would run, um, and the, the CPU was also was also pipelined, so it could do more instructions per clock cycle than the 386 did. So games started to be, I mean, a lot more advanced. You could see better graphics, uh, and um, and I mean, it it was such such a leap. In a way that even uh, they started to do this technique called the clock doubling, and the clock tripling, and um, it was fast. I mean, 
these CPUs were very fast and for, for anyone that liked uh, to play older games you would now face the problems of computers too fast to run your uh, older games that was pretty common with, with 486's but um, yeah I mean I think the 486 epitomizes the, the, the end of MS-DOS gaming um, there were people uh, that would still um, run Pentiums, which was the follow-up to the 486, uh, that would run Pentiums uh, and had DOS on those machines. But at that point, um, and with the introduction of Windows 95 in, in 1995, of course, mm-hmm. uh, people were transitioning from, from MS-DOS to um, Windows 95. And... Um, Finally, uh, I think MS DOS started to decline a lot from 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 then on. Um, so um, yeah, 1992, uh, there was quite a few nice things to appear. Uh, I mean, uh, hardware-wise, you'd have a few sound cards. Um, I, I'm not sure if you see any Super VGA games in 1992. I'm not sure. I don't think you would. But um, as far as sound cards, of course. Um, who can forget the Adlib Gold? Uh, I mean, right. such well, amazing... I mean, I mean, most people have because <laughs> it's not unfortunately, a, not, not unfortunately. a lot, not a lot of people owned it, and uh... unfortunately, because Adlib was quite late to react to the um, to the uh, Sound Blaster mm-hmm. uh, standard, um, and um, they were a company. I don't know who 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 did, it, but they would design the card in house. And but they had to have another company to actually produce the card for them. So there was de- there were there were de- delays and 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 things in the process that didn't work well. And uh, one of the things that they forgot was that the um, creative was so trenched in the market, and so many games supported the uh, Sound Blaster standard that they didn't think so much about Sound Blaster compatibility. They they wanted the AdLib Gold to be the new standard. In that way, and the hardware-wise, the Adlib Gold was superior to anything that was on the market. I think at that time, um, com- maybe compared to the um, earlier Sound Blasters, maybe not. Actually, I'll, I'll correct that. Maybe not the um, the best thing on the market in terms of sound quality, because that was probably the Gravis ultrasound that we can talk in a few minutes. Um, but the Adlib Gold was uh, comparing to the. Um, Sound Blaster 16 that was actually re- also released in 1992. Um, it had cleaner sound, uh, cleaner output. Um, I think um, in terms of sound effects, it, it, it's actually it's the DAC, the uh, PCM part was um, actually uh, a lot more quality on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it had quite a few. Uh, I guess it was. Um, a few uh, Yamaha chips that were obscure at the time they were um, but they were quite capable and the card even had I'm not sure if you know this but the card had an optional surround module yes that it was I know because my favorite soundtrack my favorite yes. Adlib soundtrack supports, supports it supports that yes. yeah yes. <laughs> I mean I mean who can who can listen to Dune Cryo's yeah. Dune on a Roland MT32. No, nobody. I hope nobody does. Nobody. What a oh, man. Terrible. Uh, this is oh. this is the the OPL soundtrack for me because it, yeah, it it's yeah. so beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful as it is on OPL2 and OPL3, but like uh, uh, like on Adlib Gold with surround module, which yeah, thank yeah, God I mean, somebody actually digitized it and put it up online because actually uh, it was a uh, Cloud Chatsa, which is a. Uh, 
a very nice guy from the Vogans community and also from Quest Studios. Very nice guy. I, I post links to those videos like at least once a month probably because like Chani's eyes makes me cry. Oh, it's yeah. so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, yes. Because like I, I, don't, so... I don't even care because I have the, the Spice Opera CD and yeah, as much as I great. like it, yeah, as I much like as I like it, it's yeah. not the same. Like yeah, to hear, to hear that being to, to to. synthesized um, in real time with with real hardware, like uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's the amazing. epitome of FM synthesis yeah, pretty much, on, yes. on on computer. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean the AdLib Gold, and and you can even go on Wikipedia, and. Um, on the you can search for Adlib Gold and they actually have an, uh, a small example of um, a few clips of um, a comparison of Adlib Gold and Sound Blaster 16 mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, a MIDI file and if you hear that on the Adlib Gold and then you hear it on Sound Blaster 16 uh, I mean for me uh, and I don't think it's a placebo effect because I'm pretty sure uh, and a lot of people have confirmed it especially who owns Adlib Gold um, but the Atlet Gold sounds a lot clearer. Um, sound blasters can get a bit, um, they, they kind of boost the low frequencies a lot. And so it's, it, it's, it's too bassy. I mean, the FM, it's, it's quite bassy by nature. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if, if, um, if you amplify that, I mean, it kind of, lo- you kind of lose the dynamic of, of FM. And I think, I think Adlet Gold, um, sounds so good. Sounds very clean. You can hear what FM is about. And, and I mean, I guess, I mean, Adlib Gold didn't have, um, a lot of support. So it went away. Uh, but it still was supported by quite a few games. I mean, uh, people can search, uh, Moby games and, and search the Adlib Gold standard. Um, and there are quite a, a lot of games were supported by, by Adlib Gold. The problem for Adlib Gold was, of course, not only it was late on the market, but it wasn't totally, uh, it wasn't, uh, Sound Blaster compatible. Mm-hmm. I actually, when searching for the Adlib Gold, I came across a post on a forum somewhere of some guy that was posting that one of his friends got, got, uh, found a, a card which was boxed still. Uh, with the documentation and everything, he was posting pictures, and on there was a, like an addendum uh, sheet, which said uh, Sound Blaster compatibility, and um, I guess that AdLib was at that time trying to write a, a, a resident memory program, which we would call the TSR mm-hmm. program, that were trying to tap into um, what the Sound Blaster was was doing on hardware. I, I think it, 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 what the, the TSR would do, it was it would try to um, tap into the, uh, the what the Sound Blaster was doing in terms of hardware, like the uh, I/O and the way it would work to tap into it and to try to get some uh, Sound Blaster compatibility. Uh, and actually, I, f- I I was reading through that, and they had um, uh, the TSR that. Where we're, they were trying to get some sound blaster compatibility, but unfortunately, that was too late. Actually, I, f- I found it. Um, I actually read it. In this package, we include an, a new driver. This driver will let you emulate the sound blaster product from your AdLib Gold 1000. That gives you the power of AdLib, Sound Blaster, and all the companies compatible with these. So, and they actually say it only is like 50% com- compatible because they were still working on it, but. Uh, I guess they, I mean, they recognized too late 
that they needed um, they needed uh, Sound Blaster compatibility, and that was too late. And unfortunately for Adlib Gold, um, it was a, an example of a car that, while being uh, te- technically superior, um, because it would do these things, and it could, um, I think, the FM sound, the FM, the OPL3 chip could be routed to one of there was a chip that could do effects and uh, the card could route the the output of the FM chip into that that chip to give it effects before it was outputted into analog um so the card was obviously um had a hardware wise a leg up on sound blasters but unfortunately um it died i mean the card is so rare today uh these days that i think i i saw i think two appeared this year on ebay and they sold within uh, a few hours, I think, uh, for the um, for like three hundred dollars or so. People were seeing that buy it now three hundred dollars and buy buy that immediately. Right. Yeah. Uh, because the cards are so rare today, and the surround module, I think, is even more rare. So, <laughs> um, I think wh- whoever has one, I mean, should keep to to that. I think uh, Jim Leonard, one of your uh, your guests he probably he has, does if he has I think I saw a video from him where he has um, a boxed um, Alip Gold still shrink wrapped uh, <laughs> um, but yeah unfortunately Alip Gold did not uh, did not fare well so um, 1992 uh, Sound Blaster 16 became massified I mean it was massive I mean I think Sound Blaster 2 is probably the most common card uh, creative card today in terms of retro hardware and um, it was, of course, widely supported. Um, but in terms of quality, it's kind of it's a car that when I think about the retro build, it's kind of meh to me. I mean, it's kind of eh, mm-hmm. who cares about Sound Blaster 16? Although, um, you know, I don't care about Sound Blaster 16 because there's the Gravis Ultrasound, which was a fantastic card. Which was uh, I could describe the Gravis uh, as capable of the best and the worst. Uh, the worst because. It, it, they promised um, ad-lib compatibility and the card did not have a, um, a FM chip at all. So what the card tried to do was to, through their wavetable um, um, capabilities, try to emulate FM. But of course, that that's not going to work and it's not going to sound exactly the same. And pretty much these things would all work through, uh, again, TSRs, which were memory-consuming and people would strive for memory and it was not uh, a good board for Sound Blaster compatibility, so that was a, a low thing on the Gravis Ultrasound. But um, an opposite to that, it was a great card. I mean, it had it could do it could output on PCM um, 44 kilohertz, which was very high for the time. Mm-hmm. Great, qual- great quality sound, and people who were doing the demo scene uh, were taking advantage of that card. So that card pretty much became the uh, the mm-hmm. um, the most uh, wanted car for for the demo scene, and I can actually, I, I love tracker music. I, I actually have uh, when I was a kid that 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 was one of the program one of the programs that I had to have installed on my hard drive was Inertia mm-hmm. media uh, the Inertia player and uh, listening to mod music. And um, unfortunately, I did not have a Gravis, but um, w- what a leap it was to listen from a Gravis ultrasound to a Sound Blaster, something like that. So games that t- took advantage of tracker music, like um, uh, I would guess pinball games, like pinball fantasies and dreams, and um, of course, um, One Must Fall, 
mm-hmm. um, was a fighting game, robots, great game, one of my favorite games as well. Great soundtrack. Uh, a great soundtrack as well. Kenny, uh, what was Kenny Chow? I think the name of the guy was Kenny Chow. The same, something like that. Um, Crusader. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Crusader and and the uh, and the uh, you know Star Control. Star Control, yeah, yeah, amazing games. I mean, um, games that supported directly the Gravis ultrasound sounded very, very good. Uh, so the Sound Blaster 16 for me does not is not very, very, um, very important. Even when I do a retro build. Um, so yeah, in terms of hardware, I guess the 486. Um, you could, in the time of the 486, you, you would have VLB, which was VESA local bus. Mm-hmm. And then uh, PCI was introduced. It was quite buggy in the beginning. Uh, Vesa local bus was quite problematic because it had trouble working with speeds beyond 33 megahertz. So um, chips that were clock doubled, or for instance, uh, AMD used to have their 40 megahertz chips, would, which were reliant on the 40 megahertz bus. Mm-hmm. And then they introduced the uh, DX80, DX280. Uh, again, uh, two times forty would give the eighty forty megahertz buzz, and even the one twenty, which was clock tripled. Um, Vesa local bus have troubles uh, coping with with uh, speeds above um, um, thirty three megahertz. So um, PS PCI was introduced. It was a big buggy, bit buggy at the beginning, but that wasn't a big problem for um, for gaming. Um, and PCI was a lot more tolerant. So um, PCI cards, graphics cards appear and um, quite faster than the ISA or VLB cards. Um, and gaming went a lot further. And of course, for Windows, it was important to have a good uh, 2D accelerator for your Windows and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of hardware, that was pretty much up to 1995 until the um, um, Windows 95 started to um, substitute and go and MS-DOS uh, started, went away. Um, as far as sound cards, uh, I guess the AWE32 from, from Creative and the AWE64 pretty much ended um, the sound card thing. Um, they had their own chips. Their, um, it was a, a quite a capable chip, the EMU8000 EMU synthesizer chip, which uh, Creative was trying to push forward um, to kind of to compete with with uh, general MIDI because at that time um, you could buy wavetable um, daughter boards for your sound blasters or your sound cards that had um, um, a wavetable connector uh-huh. uh, header. You could like uh, there was the crea- creative wave blaster and wave blaster two, and there were um, a few by Roland like the SCB seven if I'm not mistaken, which was sound canvas. Which was basically like having a, an external sound canvas, and there was a very popular one by Yamaha, which was the DB uh, 50 and 60 XG, which were awesome, awesome uh, general MIDI compliant uh, daughter cards, which were cloned by NEC again, the Japanese. The uh, Yamaha licensed um, those cards for NEC to to um, to clone them, and they were quite popular cards, and a lot of games sound awesome through those cards. Uh, the sound canvas was probably um, what um, game developers used the most. So most games that do general MIDI and that were made to support uh, 
the sound canvas, uh, sound barrel with sound canvas, because that's what the hardware that developers had. But there's quite a few examples where Yamaha actually sounds better. It, again, it's it, it, this is all taste, but um, for me, there's quite a few games where um, Yamaha sounds better than than Roland Sound Canvas. I would say probably Descent is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, even Doom, I think some tracks. I, I I think I prefer Yamaha, the Yamaha General MIDI. Um, Again, for instance, games like Dune 2 that already supported, um, also supported General MIDI. And of course, uh, I don't know if you know that there was a patch for Dune 2 where you could, um, um, the original Dune 2, you can only select one um, sound device. Mm-hmm, so if mm-hmm. you wanted to get uh, music and sound uh, and uh, digitized voice, you had to choose a sound blaster. But uh, there was a patch where you could choose like the Roland MT32 for music. And the uh, sound blaster for voices, so that helped, and uh, it's quite an experience to play Dune 2 with a uh, general MIDI. It's quite nice, um, but yeah, in terms of sound standards, um, it was general MIDI, of course. That was the um, creative trying to push their EMU 8000, which was quite a capable chip when uh, game supported it. The, the a good example of that would be again Tyrion. Actually, Tyrion, um, when played, uh, actually, if you go to setup on, on Tyrion, you will see like FM, you will see Gravis, and you will see SW16 AWE. And if you choose AWE, um, and you have, uh, AWE32 or AWE64, you can hear the, what the, uh, um, EMU8000 chip was, was capable, which was quite a nice chip. I mean, the soundtracks that were th- uh, composed with the MU8000 in mind sound really good in that. Uh, unfortunately for creative, um, GM was too too trenched on, on, on the market and um, so they kind of went away with, with their, their uh, AWE standard and they started to make their PCI uh, soundboards. So, yeah, I guess that um, this is pretty much it uh, in terms of um, in terms of um, sound standards and hardware and how it went uh, until Windows 95 started to replace MS-DOS. Well, yeah. I at guess the, that... At the tail, tail end of that is, you know, once Windows 95 arrived, we had a small, very sort of small uh, percentage of, like, DOS, DOS-supported 3D accelerators with only... A handful, yes, of, handful yes, of games yes. supporting them. I guess, like yes, you know, like Mech yes. Warrior Two, like Tomb Raider. That became, yeah, exactly. That uh, became the big thing. The, the uh, 3D cards. Yeah, and... but only not mostly not for DOS games. I mean, there is also like a a couple of really weird ones, like the Red Guard, which is like on, was like 3D effects only DOS yes. game, which is why now you you really can't play it on, yeah. on on anything which was really stupid of them but it's not like it's a great game either but yeah there, there were quite a few games that supported 3d accelerators for dos yeah i mean but uh, that that went out they're quickly. all kind of like old from 96 through 97 period and they're like when dos was on its last legs anyway and most of them some of them also had you know windows re- releases simultaneous so which would uh, take uh take support of more generic apis so uh, and yeah yeah, I mean, um, uh, to wrap this up and to finish, I would uh, say that um, uh, today, of course, the, the options for for um, for playing these games, of course, there's DOSBox, which 
does a great job. I mean, no one can deny it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a purist, and uh, for everyone that's listening out there to this podcast, um, and it's not a bad idea to because uh, there's nothing like playing on the real thing, at least for me. Oh, of course. And uh, there's there's an, a very big satisfaction in building actually a retro rig. So um, there's actually a few advice that I, w- I would could give you to to everyone out there. Right. Um, I guess that the best platform. Uh, in terms to play DOS games, if you want a, a machine that it's capable of, of covering the most uh, terms of in terms of games and time periods, would be building a Super Socket Seven machine, and I'll explain that. Um, uh, Super Socket Seven uh, um, boards and and CPUs that run on on Super Socket Seven. I would recommend the uh, uh, K6, the AMD K6, uh, the two and the three, especially their uh, low-powered versions, uh, which were enhanced and they have the plus. So if you're looking for a, a CPU, you would choose the K62 plus or the K63 and the plus as well. And what what these are are actually um, enhanced versions of of the K6 processors with um, integrated L2 cache, which make them very very fast. They're very fast for, uh, CPUs for DOS. Um, and not only that, but um, at the time that AMD introduced the uh, Plus, these Plus chips were actually aimed for, for uh, laptops. And of course, laptops uh, need um, good power management. So um, the chips can actually th- throttle down. So there's a um, an actual... Um, Tool for DOS that you can load before you you load like uh, when you start to load DOS you load that driver and you select the the multiplier on the chip. So basically, if you run if you're running a 66 uh, front side bus, and if you choose um, a multiplier of two, you're going to have um, a clock speed of 133, which is pretty much like a Pentium 133. Uh, of course, the K63 is going to be a little bit faster than, than a Pentium 133 because of additional improvements. But the, the reason why I, I recommend these chips is because you can go to the BIOS and you can disable the internal cache and the motherboard cache. And when you do that, the CPU becomes very, very slow. Uh, so slow that it, it it's as slow as a 386DX25 or 33 around that, depending on the, the how fast your motherboard is. So if you want to cover a time period that where you can play um, old games and new games, I really recommend the Super Socket 7 platform uh, for that for that um, for that matter because you can get very slow speeds where your games won't run very fast, and you can ve- get very fast slow speeds if you want to play the most modern um, PC games. Um, as far as um, um, storage, I would recommend you to get um, one of those um, compact flash card adapters. Get a compact flash card in there and format the thing two gigabytes if you're using MS DOS 6.22, um, and it's more than enough. They do uh, they consume I mean insignificant power. They're not noisy. They're re- reliable, so you'll save money in hard drives. It's a lot better. Um, so that's a good thing. You'll build the the most quiet um, retro machine ever because we <laughs> we all remember we all remember how noisy oh, I do, uh, computers yes, were. Of course, and um, 
and you know my 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 SuperSocket Seven DOS machine is very very quiet, and because because I like to enjoy music, and the games and the soundtracks is very important for me. So my computer is very very silent. Um, the chips run run very the the CPU runs very cool, as well. Um, I would recommend you in terms of sound. Um, um, if you choose a motherboard, choose at least a motherboard that has at least two ISA slots because that's important for for the um, for the sound cards. Um, video is also very important as well because you you're gonna need good VGA compatibility. You're gonna need good EGA compatibility and CGA as well. Um, I would recommend if you're running on a PCI bus, I would recommend the S three S three trio cards. Trio, uh, not not a, yeah. not a verge. Um, the trio, are, the Verge is good as well, but the Verge, uh, the uh, trio are a bit, a little bit more compatible. Okay. Um, the Verge are, are are good as well. Um, on a PCI bus, you can also get a Voodoo Two Banshee, mm-hmm. which were very very fast two D uh, accelerators. They they were very fast. They're not so compatible, not as compatible as the, um, of course, the S three, which would be my card of choice. And if you want to run on the AGP bus, uh, I would choose the Voodoo 3 or, again, the Voodoo 2 Banshee. I think the Voodoo 3 is very underrated, one of the most underrated um, um, graphics chips. Very fa- Again, very fast 2D, quite compatible. There might be a few CGA games and EGA games that won't run properly, but I guess that the, mo- the majority of them will. Um, there are a few Matrox cards on the PCI bus that could do as well the G200 or G400 um, but those might have a little bit more problems in terms of comp- compatibility especially if you want to run CGA and EGA um, but yeah my, my, my card of choice would be the S3 now for sound to wrap that up um, I would say probably the Sound Blaster Pro 2 which was probably um one of the most supported cards. You could do well with um, Sound Blaster 16 as well. And um, uh, if you only have one slot left, I would recommend a card that has um, at least uh, MPU 401 UART compatible. And the reason for this is that uh, there's a little um, a little software tool that was made by uh, actually a British guy. He used the um, the, the code from from DOSBox uh, from the uh, DOSBox MPU emulation, and what he did, he, he, he the, the, it's a little TSR uh, that tries to emulate intelligent MPU 401 on a dumb uh, MPU 401 UART, <laughs> which the Sound Blaster 16 had. So basically, what this means is that with a with a simple cable game port to MIDI cable, you can drive an MT32. Uh, for those uh, games, Sierra games that needed the intelligent mode, because if you want hardware intelligent mode, you would have to buy um, MPU for one from Roland or from another um, brands that did, but they were not 100% compatible. But uh, I wouldn't recommend this because these cards today are very, very expensive. I mean, getting a true uh, hardware MPU for one can spend you like hundreds of dollars today. So with a simple game port to MIDI cable and using soft MPU, you can plug that, use soft MPU, emulate, and it will it works perfectly. It's probably one of the best um, tools that exist today for retro gaming is soft MPU, and I cannot stress this enough. Very, very cool TSR. Finally, 
we have that thing that enables us to uh, play uh, MT32 games that uh, needed the intelligent MPU-401 um, emulated through normal MPU-401 UART that was included on Soundblaster 16 or um, other cards. Um, there's an alternative to the Soundblaster 3, um, Pro 2, like the YMF um, 700 series chips, which have a true uh, OPL3 uh, integrated, and they can do. There are totally Soundblaster Pro 2 uh, compatible. Like I guess 99% compatible. There's only like one or two games that might have a little bit problems, like Duke Nukem 2. I think that's a good example. But since I don't care about that game, <laughs> um, <laughs> those cards are very good and actually can do one thing that a true Soundblaster Pro 2 cannot, which is um, the Pro 2 topples at 22 kilohertz maximum sampling frequency. And uh, a YMF uh, 700 series card can do um, 44 kilohertz. So it, in terms of sound co- uh, quality, it's pretty close to a Gravis ultrasound, which is quite impressive for, for such uh, small and affordable cards. Um, and then if you have uh, more, uh, and these cards, by the way, these YMF cards all also have, um, MPU 401 UART. So you can use, again, soft MPU with those cards to drive an MT32. Um, it's very important if you want to uh, experience MT32. Um, and there's also, if you like it, of course, the Gravis ultrasound. Um, I would rather have a Gravis ultrasound than a Sound Blaster 16. I would prefer to have, the Gravis and the YMF card, which would give me uh, Soundblaster Pro 2 compatibility and Gravis, than to have a Soundblaster 16 because I prefer mostly most games that support the uh, Soundblaster 16 also support the Gravis, so I would prefer the Gravis. Um, so yeah, that's that's my my basic advice on on if you want to build a retro and go for it a retro rig. It's <laughs> it's so much it's so much satisfying to build your own retro rig. And it's so cool to use like old technology and mix it with new technology like CF cards and adapters that completely substitute your hard drive. And I mean, it's it's quite a uh, a nice thing to do. And uh, if you want need any help with this, you can go on Vogons or Vintage Computer Forums, and I guess that uh, everyone there will will give you a hand. So um, that's it. <laughs> that's all that I have to say about uh, <laughs> and. If you guys stay this long through this podcast, you are troopers out there. Me ranting about this stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm sure plenty uh, of people will find this useful. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hula, whoever loves DOS and wonderful DOS, for me, it's my favorite uh, OS ever. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you want to experience DOS like it was and you want to get out of DOSBox for a while, which is awesome, uh-huh. By the way, DustBox um, is great, but if you like, if you are into retro gaming and stuff, I mean, you don't yeah. really even. I mean, building your own thing is nice, but like, start you know, start small. You can you can pick up uh, an old dust machine, yeah, for yeah, for yeah, very absolutely. cheaply, probably from one of your neighbors or from somewhere on Craigslist or yeah, or yeah, something abso- for like absolutely for like twenty dollars. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you get that, then you can start going from there because you'll see yeah. how much difference, uh, it will be to play on the real hardware versus Dustbox. I actually play mostly in Dustbox. I'm not going to lie, just out of the convenience. Uh, yeah, just because of the but I do have, uh, a little machine and I know a lot of my friends who are into retro dust gaming, uh, have started 
actually building theirs as well so it's uh, not just getting like old machines from people but uh, you know so it's all uh, it's, it's all very interesting one day i'll probably have a, a few built just for for different uh, for different purposes yes absolutely um well uh, this was a, a pleasure i i thank you sir for for allowing me to have the opportunity to rant about uh, uh, hardware that ran DOS, which uh, is something that I love with with a passion. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, um, so uh, yeah, I hope uh, everyone is not too bored. <laughs> I didn't bore you guys, uh, but uh, yeah, that was my take on on the stuff and mm-hmm. my experiences and with uh, and you know, there's so many things that could be said, uh, but there's no time for it all. So. Uh, uh, well, um, thank you. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. It's all, it's it's great to have you here. Uh, as usual, that's for everybody else out there. Uh, if you're interested uh, in being on this podcast, and if you have a topic you can uh, you you think you can uh, uh, talk about, uh, just contact me anywhere where you can find the link to Dust Nostalgia, and you could be here as well. Well, sir, it's great to have you here. But before we depart, uh, is there any place where the listeners can? Uh, find you uh, online to maybe ask a question or to see your work or yeah, absolutely uh, I can be found mostly at Vogons forums that's V-O-G-O-N-S dot mm-hmm. um, org and you can look for Carlos Tex that's C-A-R-L-O-S-T-E-X and uh, you can send me a PM you can register there ask me a question whatever feel free to ask anything and uh, to me or anyone in the community which I think will be very helpful and very happy to uh answer your questions um, that's pretty much it I, I'm not um, very much into Twitter or anything like that I might do an account an account like uh, one of these days but um, yeah pretty much on uh, Vogon so you can find me there or uh, if you want to send me an email or something like that you can contact me at carlos.t uh, that's c-a-r-l-o-s dot t-e-x at gmail so uh Please don't spam me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, no, no solicited services, please. <laughs> well, that's great. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's thank been you, a Anatoly. pleasure. And to everybody out there, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, I hope uh, uh, I hope uh, we meet again on this uh, Das Nostalgia podcast. Remember, always remember your video game roots. Absolutely. And. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.